First John. Um, so if you want to open your Bibles quickly there, we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 onwards. Uh, so we'll begin there in a moment. But um, yeah, first I just wanted to um, whet the appetite slightly, really, about the movie night on, on Tuesday. Um, I am peeking out a little bit, so. I can hear the feedback on that slightly. Okay. Um, well, that's it. Okay. Great. As long as I'm not, because I will shower. So uh, I don't want to deafen okay. um, the poor people here. That's great. Okay. Um, yeah, so got a bit more volume there, just a touch. Thank you. Hopefully it's not going to leak out. Right. Yeah, just wanted to whet the appetite slightly about Tuesday. Um, Obviously, with us not being able to do a fat lot other than church services, um, it's nice to have alternatives during the week, opportunities for fellowship and growing together as church. And so we're super grateful to the Lord, really, for such fantastic technology like the church online page um, and various other things that we can use to our advantage in this strange time. And so one thing we thought would be really cool um, would be to have a church movie night. Um, as Claire so um, excellently explained. And, uh, you know, we've done movie nights before. I've done tons of movie nights where we watch a fun movie everyone enjoys and uh, has a great time. But I think we wanted to kind of go at the next level up and have a movie night that kind of is a bit of a conversation starter, right? It's a bit of a thought provoker. And so the movie we're going to watch on Tuesday is a phenomenal movie about Reformed theology which I think is sadly is one of the most misunderstood um, sort of ways of Christian thinking in this country today. Um, it's our heritage, you know, we, we as a church and every evangelical church in this country is really born out of the Reformation. And John Wycliffe is one of our own. He was one of the sort of morning stars, as they call him, of the Reformation itself. And we know so little about the Reformation, and particularly about the theology of the Reformation, which was its strength. Um, so, although many in this country are happy to um, sing the praises of Wycliffe, um, few of them would actually agree with his theology in this day and age, which is a, sh it is a shame, because it was all to the glory of God, in my view. But this is going to be a movie that's going to provoke your thoughts, uh, hopefully it's going to start some discussions, um, and so I would really encourage you to log on on Tuesday night, I'll send an email out, and we're going to be watching a movie called Calvinist. Yeah, and just watch people shaking in their seats as that word reverberates around the room. Um, but it's not something you should be afraid of. Um, and hopefully it's going to be an opportunity to start some healthy discussions around the dinner table. <clears throat> Great. Uh, okay, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 for our Christmas service message. How many of you are looking forward to Christmas, even though... Even despite of, in spite of Bojo's message yesterday, I'm still looking forward to Christmas. I'm still very much excited uh, to be with family um, and even just have the, that day together is just a real blessing. So uh, we're really excited for that. <clears throat> and hopefully today's message 
is going to prepare you uh, further to celebrate the Christmas season, and not just for all of the cool presents and the incredible food that you get to stuff your bellies with, but also we make Christmas special because we remember the reason for the season, that we remember Jesus and we remember exactly what that means for us as Christians. Um, just a quick anecdote before I do properly start. We were in the car, me, Phoebes and Tilly, yesterday, and we were listening to a song by Matt Redman. And this song was all about the resurrection. It was all about Jesus rising from the dead. And um, Phoebe piped up very, you know, she's very aware, is our Phoebes, and she said, but it's not Easter. It's not Easter, Daddy. And I said, yes, you're right, actually. It's not Easter. But as Christians, you know what? We celebrate Easter every day. Every day. And it's the same with Christmas. You know, we're not just an Easter people. We're a Christmas people as well. We celebrate the birth of Jesus every day and what that means for us. So, if you've got your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1 and verse 67, we'll begin reading. I'm in the New King James. It's not massively an issue what translation you've got unless you've got something a little bit more wilder out there. Uh, if you have a passion, please exit now. Um, I'm joking, sort of. Um, so let's read, I'm in the New King James. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Lord, as we focus in on your word today, we pray, Lord God, that this word would be to us like the day spring of light dawning upon us, upon our consciences, upon our minds. And that, Lord, as we hear these words today, that there would be a transformation within us. Lord, that our feet would be guided into the path of peace, as this word promises. Lord, so many of us have struggled this week with great feelings, I'm sure, of hopelessness. We've wrestled with nagging doubts about whether you're really here and involved in what's happening in the world today. But Lord, we thank you for this word and we thank you for the truth of what it speaks to us, that you have not abandoned us. That the birth of your dear son means that you are forever wedded 
to us and to this world. We pray that in hearing your word today, we might have peace. Lord, help me to preach your word without preaching my feelings. Help me to preach your word without preaching my opinions. Nobody here needs those. I pray, Lord, that as I preach, it would be as clear and as unadulterated as it can possibly be. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think somebody back there might be competing with me. Is that my mother-in-law? <laughs> Do you want to hear a funny story about me accidentally playing um, audio in church once? This is really embarrassing. Once, uh, when me and Bex, we just, I think we just moved house. We were living in Oxford, and uh, we were visiting a new church. And we sat down, had a great time in worship, just as we were sitting down and the pastor got up to kind of welcome everybody. Um, all of a sudden, I just heard this voice that sounded very familiar to me. And this voice went, hello, Graham, hello, Graham, like that. And this is back in the day, when remember before phones were sort of slim and sleek and... This was sort of back in the day when a, a cool phone looked like a brick, you know, it was huge. It's one of these like Sony phones, it was massive. And I used to wear baggy jeans, no, skinny jeans, that was it at the time, very skinny jeans. And as I sat down, I'd obviously pushed a button, which had caught my mum. <laughs> <laughs> and mum, bless her, was there addressing the congregation <laughs> at Oxford Vineyard, which they were super blessed by. So, there we go. <laughs> Oh dear. Anyway, so obviously today we're taking a break from our study of First John. Um, we're focusing in on this portion of Luke chapter one, which records for us Zechariah's song, the song of Zechariah, which is also known as the Benedictus by theologians and more traditional churches called the Benedictus, and it's one of two songs actually in Luke chapter one. You may have noticed that just a few verses earlier. There's another um, song in the chapter. You can tell because the words in your Bible will kind of narrow down and they'll take on that kind of prophetic, poetic form, um, the format there. And that's Mary's song, Mary's song. That's called the Magnificat. Um, and the Benedictus, that word, is Latin for blessed or blessed, however um, you might want to say that. Now, Mary's Magnificat, she sings that, interestingly enough, as she arrives at the house of Zechariah, the subject of our message today. She sings that as she arrives at his house, she's greeted by the pregnant Elizabeth, who has the sort of three-month-old John in her womb, and, and John leaps for joy inside of her womb, if you remember in that passage. He leaps for joy as he encounters the presence of of the pre-born Jesus. Now, for me, I, I read that, and if ever you needed proof that life inside the womb is sacred, that's it right there. That's it. At this moment, this special moment where Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, she cries out for joy, and Mary sings. I, I often like to think that maybe Zacharias is somewhere. We don't know, it's conjecture whether he was there, but I think, I like to think, imagine if he was there. You imagine him hearing all of the commotion from another room, unable to speak, but hearing 
these wild sounds of praise and worship. How must that have felt for him? He had been made dumb, obviously, couldn't speak. And this is something the Lord, the angel of the Lord, had, had done concerning his unbelief. You remember when the angel visited Zacharias, told him about his son to be, and the Lord deemed his response to be a response of unbelief. And the Lord said, You shall be struck dumb until the day, effectively, that your son arrives. Now, I wonder if we put ourselves in Zechariah's position right here, hearing all of that commotion inside your house, people singing praise to the Lord, thanking him, getting excited about what he's doing in their lives. How must that have felt for him, I wonder? I wonder how we respond when we're in a similar place of trial and challenge, just like Zechariah was. I wonder how we respond when we encounter Christians who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of joy and praise, and they're having a mountaintop experience and you're having a valley experience. It's hard, isn't it? I wonder how Zechariah responded. We don't know because the scriptures don't tell us. But I think what we can hold on to here is that when we're in seasons of trial, and we will encounter seasons of trial, brothers and sisters, uh, the Christian life isn't one of milk and cookies. The, the Christian life is one of encountering trials and challenges and difficulties. And that's just a fact of life. But it's a comfort to us to remember that the Lord's discipline, the Lord's allowing of challenge in your life, which is something that he certainly does, his discipline, that is, it only falls on a certain category of people. The Lord's discipline only falls on a very specific category of people. And that is, according to Hebrews 12, 6, those he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, I think this is a, a terribly, woefully underpreached passage of the Bible. I think, you know, it's important to remember here that Zechariah wasn't suffering through some random illness. Zechariah was standing there, dumb, unable to speak, because it was God who had made it unable to speak. I'm not going to derail my preach too much to say this, but I, but I will say this in comment. I think sometimes in this day and age, we want to erase this type of passage from our Bibles. We don't want to read about this truth that God does exercise discipline, that God does allow, even ordain trials in our lives. And there are many that even believe that God would not never allow any trial or suffering in the life of a Christian. And that, that's not spurious. I've heard that preached many times. God will never allow anything painful into your life. But surely, that's not true. According to the Bible, that's manifestly false. The occasions on which God 
ordains or even sends trials and suffering into the lives of his people. There are too many to reel off in the Bible. Perhaps most centrally to my, my argument here is that God directly caused suffering to his own son. If this is making you feel uncomfortable, then good, because it will help. Read with me Acts 4, 27 to 29. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So whatever happened to Jesus by the hands of either Pontius Pilate, think of what happened to Jesus at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was scourged at the hands of Pontius Pilate. If you know anything about the uh, practice of Roman scourging, you'll know this was done with a flagrum. Anybody know what a flagrum is? It's a wooden staff about that long and attached to it are three strips of leather. And into these three strips of leather are pressed and woven and uh, placed bits of bone, ragged pieces of bone, bits of lead, um, sharp other pieces of metal. And the flagrum was then whipped across um, Jesus' back. Uh, this, this was no kind of circus whip. This was dreadful punishment. But your Bible says that this was something that the Lord had predestined to take place. So the Lord absolutely has purpose in ordaining seasons of pain and trial and suffering for us. Now, before we all start running out of here and saying, why do we believe in this God? It's important to remember that you too Without even looking at your Bible, you agree that there are certain forms of suffering that are good. How many of you have been under the knife of a surgeon? How many of you have been to the dentists and had those awful injections in the roof of your mouth when they need to take a tooth out? I have. That was not pleasant. I suffered. You probably suffered. But it was a good kind of suffering. It was a necessary form of suffering in order that your body would be healthier. And so the same is true of God. We live in a broken and sinful world. And that sin did not come from the hands of God, but from our sinful hearts since the fall of Adam and Eve. And therefore, in this sinful world, there will always be pain and suffering. And God, in his power, in his might, in his wisdom, uses suffering in order to bring about the spiritual health of his people. He disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son who he receives. God is in control of every single event in your life. God is in control of what's happening in the world right now with coronavirus. He's not standing on the sidelines saying, oh, I didn't see this coming. I wish things had played out differently. If only my church would listen and, and pray the right prayers, then all this would go away. Now, I don't doubt we should be praying for deliverance, but what I will say is this. The Lord is not caught by surprise by coronavirus. The Lord has his purposes in coronavirus. The Lord has his purposes in your suffering. That's what the Bible presents. It doesn't mean we should stop praying for deliverance. It doesn't mean we should say, okay, well, if it be your will, Lord, I will suffer more. I think there's a place for enduring suffering, but I equally think there's a place for standing in prayer and contending to be delivered from it. 
Maybe the Lord is causing you suffering in order that you'd learn to pray. Maybe. We don't always get to know, but what we do know is that the Lord has his purposes in suffering. And he certainly did in the case of Zechariah. Our Christian responses to trial and suffering ought to be as follows. Number one, to receive whatever comes to pass with boldness and with peace. Knowing this, that he who works all things together for our good is in it. He's in this moment. He's with us. And so therefore, whatever comes our way, we receive it with boldness and with peace, knowing God is with us. And secondly, we pray earnestly and consistently for deliverance. You know, people in this nation over hundreds of years have gone through awful times of pestilence and illness, the plagues, to name just one of the example. And Christians during this time have been refined and purified more than perhaps any other time. Perhaps that's a bit of an overstatement, but certainly God has used these times of pestilence in thousands of years this nation's been around to purify his church. You only need to read the accounts of some of the Puritans. Richard Baxter, just down the road in Kidderminster, used to go and visit the houses of people infected with the plague and pray for them without fear. It was a time when the Lord, yes, refined his church. They also prayed for deliverance from the plague, but they recognised that the Lord was calling his church to a new place of surrender, a new place of prayerfulness, a new place of reliance on him. I think that's the one thing 2020's taught us all, is that we can't rely on anything with God fully, with our whole weight. We can't lead all of ourselves into anything but the Lord. Things can change in a heartbeat, but the Lord endures forever. Amen. So let's, let's just remember this, is that Zechariah, as we find him here in verse 67, has endured nine months of silence. Now, I can't think of enduring one day of silence. I don't know about you, but I'm a motor mouth. I need to speak. He's gone through nine months of silence that the Lord put on him. The Lord put that on him. And what are the first words out of his mouth? Blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. <laughs> Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Wow. What a powerful testimony. I, I just think, I just feel so encouraged by that, that out of a season of trial, but equally of blessing, it's a bit like the story of Job, when Job goes through all those trials and his wife even says to him, Job, just curse God and die. And he falls down and worships God. I think it's a prophetic picture for us now as a church, maybe. Many of you are enduring trials. I know that I am. Just in the last two days, I've felt, I've felt that kind of battlefront in my mind. I don't know about you, but wrestling with feel, feelings of despair and hopelessness. These are things that are very real and will be happening to you also. And this testimony of Zacharias in verse 67, the first words out of his mouth are, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Verse 67 says, 
And Zacharias, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. He hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit until that moment. You notice that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit when John jumped in her womb, but Zacharias wasn't. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the moment when Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think it would be remiss to jump over this verse without making a few points. What was the first thing that happened when Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit? That he prophesied. That he prophesied. For me, when I read this verse, it's almost like a prophetic picture. It's almost like a prophetic picture of the church. This is a foretaste of what the Christian church is going to look like. Before Jesus has even been born, we're seeing a little foretaste of what it's going to look like to be part of his church. Amen? What do we see? We see the Spirit of God filling somebody, and immediately, boom, songs of praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Prophecy flowing forward. And right at the end of this prophecy, what do we see? What's the mountaintop point of this prophecy? It's the gospel. It's the preaching of Jesus. Most of this song that Zechariah sings is prophetic. Sorry, it's not prophetic. It's scriptural. He's literally taking Old Testament scripture, weaving it together in a prophetic song, and he arrives at the culmination of preaching Jesus. It reminded me of Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit, amen, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. I think that's me now. Um, and your young men shall see visions. That used to be me. That's Chris now. Amen. You know, as a church, as Hope City Church Wolverhampton, as a gathering of Christians where undoubtedly the Holy Spirit has been and is being poured out into your lives, guess what there should be? Prophecy. There should be a prophetic outflow. Now, we may not always see that super clearly. And I think there's always an element to which we can grow in the prophetic and we can teach more clearly about the prophetic. And I'm excited to do that. I want us to be a prophetic fellowship. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're encouraged, aren't we, to earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. And this is something I want for us to take seriously. You and I are well aware of the heinous errors of people who prophesy without the guiding light of Scripture. We've seen prophecy done really bad, but that doesn't mean we should not do it ourselves or should not try to heed the call of Scripture and desire that gift. <coughs> Excuse me. Also, this song, I got mad, didn't I? Also, this song of Zechariah's is full of scripture. It's full of scripture. It's weaving together the word of God. And I think, again, this speaks prophetically of what it means to be part of the church now. Not only are we a prophetic people, which is what we should be, and I want to encourage you to be earnestly desiring that gift of prophecy for yourself to be praying it in, to be believing God that he might work through you prophetically, however that may look, to be hungry for it and not allow the errors of others 
to stop you from hungering for this wonderful gift. But equally, his song's full of scripture. We're not just a perfected people, we're a people of the book. We're a people of the book. As I mentioned the other week, this uh, wonderful quote from Francis Schaeffer, the late theologian and apologist, who talked about what it meant to be a people of the book. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete. Complete. Can you say complete? Equipped for every good work. Hold your Bible in your hand right now. That book that you're holding in your hand is able to make you complete. That's crazy, isn't it? That word of God that you have in your hand isn't just any ordinary book. It's been God-breathed. <coughs> Excuse me, I don't know if you can get me a glass of water or something. I'm harsh. <laughs> um, oh, thank you, Tills. Bless you, darling. Very helpful. It's the word of God. Every single verse, as I've said a billion times before, the genealogies, the prophetic books, the narrative, everything in your Bible is breathed out by God, authored, sorry, by the Holy Spirit. And so that means we've got to give due care to every portion of it. That's why in this church we practice expository preaching, which is where we go verse by verse and we focus in. Because it's every single word of every single verse in every single book is there by the sovereign decree of God for your building up and for your completion as a Christian. So when we ignore the Bible, and so when we only read a verse a day, or when we go to the Bible and ask the question, what does this verse mean to me? We're getting it wrong. The, the first question has to be, what does this verse mean? before we go to that level of what does it mean to me, right? We've got to understand that God had a purpose in every single word, of every single verse, and it was for your building up and edification. We're a people of the book, not just a prophetic people. And then finally this. I don't know what the melody was of Zechariah's song. I doubt very much that it was half as cool as Rob Pearson's worship today. <laughs> Which was rocking, mate. It was awesome. Thank you very much. Phenomenal. Um, but the Bible records for us, not in the verses, but in the title of some of the Bibles. It's called Zechariah's Song, isn't it? I don't know if you've got that in your Bible. Now, those little black chapter titles, they're not God-breathed, okay? They're, they are put in there for your sake. Um, but even so, it's remembered as being a song. We're also as well as being a prophetic people, as well as being a people of the book, we're a people of worship. We're a people of worship. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, these things happened. Prophecy. Scripture was exposed. And it was done in the form of worship. Praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. We're also a people of worship. We're people who sing. 
doesn't matter if you can't hit a note, we're a people who sing the praises of God. I like to remember this verse, another 316. There are lots of awesome 316s in your Bible, if you realise that. But Colossians 316, thanks sweetheart, really appreciate your help today. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. In some scriptures, sorry, in some translations, it will even render it like admonishing one another in all wisdom through singing. So it's almost like it's a the singing of songs, of psalms and of hymns, are a way in which we build one another up, where we teach one another. The worship of this church is part of God's building up of this church. It's one of the key things about what it means to be in the church of Jesus Christ, is that we worship together, that we sing songs together. It's in that place of worship that we're built up, that we're encouraged. I often think we forget that. So much of the teaching of that worship in, in, in the modern era has been about what we experience in worship, about what we encounter, about what we feel. I don't doubt that you can have a crazy encounter with God in worship, that he can touch your heart in a radical way. Because we know that he inhabits the praises of his people. We know this is true. But perhaps one of the things we've forgotten is that we're also edified in worship. We're corrected in worship sometimes. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but when you see the words of a hymn and you begin to sing them, you realise, gosh, I don't know if I believe that. Or I don't know if I'm there yet. Worship ought to provoke you as well as move you. And that's why I think it's so important in 2021 that as a church, we give place to worship. We value worship together as a community. And we're starting off on January 5th with a worship night and we pray that the Lord would continue to open a way for us as a church to host these worship nights and come together and sing praise to God. Verse 68. It's all in the past tense as well. I don't know if you've noticed this in this passage. Zechariah's song is all in past tense. But what he seems to be talking about are things that are going to happen. If you listen to verse 69 here, sorry, 68 and 69. Thanks be to the Lord God of Israel, who has visited us and has worked or has made redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant or his child, however you want to render that. What does it mean that God is blessed to us? It's something that we say as Christians, bless you, I'm blessed. What does that mean? Because it's really kind of passed out of common parlance, doesn't it? It's not something we generally use in ordinary language. Something, it's a word we use when we come to church and we speak to other Christians, isn't it? You wouldn't rock up to your office and go, how are you? Yeah, I'm blessed. I'm super blessed. I hope you're blessed. They would look at you very strangely. 
Um, perhaps because you are strange, but that's another thing. But they, <laughs> they would look at you very oddly. But what does it mean when the New Testament says blessed, when it calls God blessed? Well, when, the, when you see that word blessed, or in the, in the Greek, the, the word is eulogetos, um, it, it means this. It means that it's calling God worthy. And it's calling God worthy of praise above all other things. That nothing else, no other name, no other God, no other person or people group is worthy like God is worthy. It's making that distinction. So when we call God blessed, we're saying to God that he is the most worthy thing in the whole world, in all of creation. He deserves our praises. He deserves all of our attention. He deserves our adoration above everything else. And I would just ask that question of you. Is God your blessed one? Is that a declaration that you can make today? That God is blessed above all other things in your life? Verse 69, Zechariah says, and you've raised a horn of salvation for us. In the Old Testament, a horn, we don't, again, we're not really going to use that word these days, are we? Um, it doesn't really kind of carry over into our language because we're not farmers. But in the Old Testament, in a time when they farmed, when they worked the land, they would lash their plows on the backs of oxen. And so the horn is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of might. And what's being said here is that the salvation which God has raised up, which Zechariah is looking forward to in Jesus Christ, he's strong. This salvation is a strong salvation. It's not weak. Well, I think this is important to remember. That might sound like a very mundane point to me. Well, of course, yeah, of course. God's salvation is strong. But listen to this. Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then one of my favourite passages in the Gospels. This salvation of which Zechariah speaks, this horn of salvation, is so strong that those whom he came to save will be saved in him. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one, not even yourself. As John MacArthur says rightly, I think, if you could lose your salvation, you would. He goes on and says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Not the devil, not another person, not yourself, not circumstances. Jesus is a strong enough saviour to keep your salvation intact. And finally, we, we land in verse 76. I'm going to skip over a few and go to verse 76 here, where John himself is prophesied about. Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before 
the Lord and make a way for him. Zechariah prophesied that John would go before Jesus and make a way for him and that he'd be called a prophet of the Most High. The first thing I want to make mention of is this, is that the Lord had a purpose for John way before John was even born. This, this kind of a thing pops up time and time again in Scripture where we see the Lord knowing stuff about people's lives long before they live. All I would say to you is, the Lord has a purpose for every single one of you sat in this room right now. He knows the beginning of your days from the end of your days. He knows what you're supposed to accomplish in this life. He has truly an amazing plan for your life. You may not know what it is. Perhaps it might not be your ideal plan for your life, but the Lord has a wonderful plan for your life. And as Christians, I often think that we can get mixed up and think that that means that God has some kind of plan for us which is over here. Right? Well, I just need to get in his plan. What's being said is that you're not living in God's plan for your life. You're living your plan for your life. <clears throat> what the Bible says is that God ensures that everything that happens in your life is as he planned for it to be. You're supposed to be right where you are right now. God has a plan for you in this season, in this time of your life, whatever it might look like, whatever you might be doing, whether you feel like what you're doing is relevant or important or uh, influential is irrelevant. The Lord has put you in this season for a mighty purpose. He's placed you right in the midst of what you're doing now to build his church to extend his kingdom, to reach the lost with the gospel. There is a purpose in who you are and what you're doing right now. Let's not be robbed of the glory of, of the Lord in the mundane. I honestly think that's such a temptation for Christians is that we think that to be walking in God's plan for our lives means that we're going to be stood in front of thousands of people, we're going to be preaching in front of the lights and we're going to have uh, masses of followers. God's plan for John's life was to eat locusts. God's plan for John's life was to live in the wilderness and wear animal fur and basically be hated by everyone. God's plan for the apostles' life, for many of them, was to, be, to go to horrible deaths, to be crucified upside down for Jesus' name. God's wonderful plan for your life isn't going to always look like what you'd hope it looked like. But be assured of this, it's going to be to his glory. It's going to be for the upbuilding of his church and his kingdom. It's going to be that people are reached for the gospel and are saved. All I'm saying is, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise the moment you're in right now. Don't let it pass you by. The Lord has purpose in where you are right now. Moreover, John is going ahead to prepare the way for Jesus. Does he go there with a shovel and a spade? Is he building a road in the wilderness physically? No, he's preaching. He's making hearts ready for Jesus to come. How does he do this? Verse 77 tells us. 
by giving his people the knowledge or understanding of the forgiveness of their sins. That's how John makes ready the way. He begins to preach about what? Repentance of sin. Be baptized. Remember, he baptized people in the River Jordan, out in the wilderness, for the repentance of their sins. God's salvation, this is important to notice again as we draw to a close, is God's salvation is a salvation that's primarily about the forgiveness of sins. That's what it's primarily about. That's what it says right here when we read that verse. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And we're not just talking here about forgiveness of sin in an abstract sense, some kind of notion of human sinfulness, but it's talking very personally about the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel is about the forgiveness of your sin. It's about the forgiveness of my sin, of our sins. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we preach, that we are told to go into all the world and to preach, is a gospel that confronts the world with its need for forgiveness. The gospel is offensive. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't going to get you likes. It's not going to get the world to think you're just a great person, which is such a shame, as we'd all quite like that, wouldn't we? To be friends with everybody. But the gospel is offensive. Because there's a message it says this, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not. When the world's message is, you're enough. Listen to your heart. You're a good person. The gospel says, no, you're not. You're a sinner. You're a hater of God, Romans 1. You're not a good person. That's what the gospel says. So is it any surprise that it got those who preached it at first in a lot of trouble? Because guess what? The world doesn't want to hear that. It doesn't want to know that it's not good. It doesn't want to know that it's not enough. Only those who belong to Jesus will hear that. Only those whom God has called and is working in their hearts and is transforming them are going to want to hear that message, that diagnosis that they are a sinner, that they are not enough, that they need a saviour. Only they are going to listen. There are many in the church, sadly, that don't like this particular gospel either. They might think like this, well, <laughs> that's all well and good. We can see in this passage that the gospel of Jesus Christ is particularly about sins. But guess what? How are we going to win people to our church if we keep talking about their sin? How are we going to attract people to our services if we keep pointing at them and saying, you need to be forgiven of your sins? And therefore I think that there's a gospel which is now being preached, which is a more palatable gospel to the world. 
It's been made. It, it's a gospel of inclusion. Now let me finish and round up on this. This new manufactured gospel. Oh, it sounds very close to the real gospel, but it's a gospel of inclusion, a gospel of acceptance, and the gospel of healing. In and of themselves, these things are not bad. Inclusion is a good thing. The gospel forgives all of those who put their trust in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be saved. That's inclusive of all those who believe. It's a gospel of acceptance. The Lord Jesus accepts you just as you are when you come in repentance. And there is healing for those who believe the gospel. There is healing through the cross. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not accepting of your sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ may be inclusive of all types of different people from all over the world and different nations, but it's not inclusive of their rebellion. And there is healing, let me tell you, in the gospel. There is supernatural healing, and I've seen it. I've seen the Lord heal people supernaturally time and time again. There is healing from hurts and offences. But healing itself is not the gospel. It's when you accept the diagnosis which God gives you through the gospel, that you are a sinner, that you are sick, that you've been angrily waving a stick at God your whole life, and that you're desperately in need of his forgiveness. Only then do you really begin to understand why the gospel is called good news. It's good news for me. It's good news for me because I realize that I'm the sinner that Jesus died for. That I was the one angrily waving a stick at God every day of my life, pretending like I was the king of my life. Like I called the shots. That it was God's job to do what I wanted. It was his job to accomplish my dreams. And even when I recognized that God was real, I still like to make excuses for myself. Well, my sins aren't that bad. You know, not compared with that person there, they're sinning far worse than I am. Here's the deal. Unfortunately, the benchmark for our sinfulness is not other people. It's God. Perfectly holy and pure. As we read in 1 John, like a pure light, without any blot or blemish, pure. That's the measure against which your life is held. It's when you see that and you realize the blackness of your own heart <clears throat> that I sin every day. I sin so much I don't even know what some of my sins are. That this black old heart needs a savior desperately. 
and there's no hope from the outside of Jesus Christ. None. A holy, pure, perfect God is not going to wink at my sin. He sent his own son to die for it. That's how seriously God takes your sin, that he would send Jesus for you. All I would say is this. Has Jesus died for you? You might know that he's coming to the world. You might be ready to accept the Easter narrative and the Christmas narrative that Jesus came, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he went to the cross. You may even accept that he died for the sins of humanity, but did he die for your sin? Did he pay for your sin on the cross? Are you ready to accept the gospel's diagnosis of your condition, that you are desperately in need of a saviour today? As much as you were yesterday, as much as the day when you invited Jesus into your life, let me tell you this. It is not those who have prayed a prayer once who will be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven. It's those who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ every day of their lives, clinging to him as their Savior, recognizing that they need him just as much today as they did yesterday. It's those who are truly saved by Jesus Christ. Because of that breaking dawn, I love the way the NIV translates verses 78 and 79. It says this, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. I love that. Because of that breaking dawn, 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, we've got hope. Amen? We have hope today. We have the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with our Father in heaven, with, with, with which you can have a relationship today. And this is accomplished through that extravagant, as this passage says, extravagant outpouring of mercy through Jesus as he was born into the world, in that barn, in that small backwater of a town, in a conquered nation under enemy control to a teenage mother 2,000 years ago. I'm going to finish with a, a little story. I was reading this cool story about a, a young boy called Cody who lived out in the Pacific Northwest in a part of Oregon, very remote, and his family were... Um, effectively uh, living way out and farming uh, out in the wilds in Oregon. So he, he was living quite the kind of rural life, very far from what we, we would experience here. And um, as a five-year-old, he used to play a game with his sister while his family were picnicking in the, in the uh, fields. He would play this game with his sister where they would uh, go off and they would see uh, how much cool wildlife they could collect in an hour. And then they'd come back together and they'd share what they'd found. And unfortunately, one day, Cody tried to show off by going further than he ordinarily would have to try and find some more wildlife. Uh, he strayed a bit too far. And when he tried to find his way back to the point where he met his sister, sorry, where he was supposed to meet his sister, he couldn't find her. And so he kept circling around this area trying to find her, but to no avail. So in the end, and Cody looked down a hill in front of him and saw a road and thought, well, that road's got to go somewhere. 
Uh, I'm going to get down to that road and then I'll, I'll keep following it and eventually it's going to lead me to civilization. And so he heads down the road and carries on walking up this dust road. Um, it's about 2.30 in the afternoon at this point. Bear in mind he's five, so he's like Tilly's age. Um, and he keeps walking and walking and walking and nothing. No sign of life. And it begins to get dark. It begins to get dark. And at this point, his legs are beginning to hurt. He's beginning to start to get a bit worried about how far he's gone wrong. And his mum's already called the local sheriff and they've sent a, a team out looking for him. But he's already walked too far outside of the search zone. So he, he begins to get a bit worried. And as he's trekking through these woods, it gets dark. It gets dark. And out from beside the woods next to him, he sees something move. As he looks behind him, he sees two figures creeping out from the tree line. It's two jackals. Now, for you and I, a jackal is probably not that much of an issue, but they have been known to eat children, too. Um, so, <laughs> um, not, not a good sight for him. So he begins to run. Uh, to leg it away from these two jackals. And he manages to scramble up this elm tree and he, he clings on up in this elm tree for hours um, trying to escape the jackals and trying to get a bit of sleep. By this point, it's pitch black. Can't see anything. Paul Allen is very scared. And he, in the end, decides when the jackals are gone, I've got to, I've got to keep going. I've got to try and find some, some kind of a... Um, a house or something. So he keeps running down this path and sees what looks like a house. Gets up closer to it and he finds out it's a shack. It's this horrible old shack in the middle of the woods. And as a five-year-old, that creeps him out even more. So now he runs back the other direction and gets even more lost. In the end, he's left completely hopeless, scared for his life, and hiding from jackals, he hears cars go by and he's so freaked out by this point that he hides from the cars from his potential rescues because he doesn't he doesn't know where he is and he's just freaked out. His only hope now is for the sunrise so he can see where he is. And sure enough, the sun begins to rise and as it does, he looks down from where he stood and he sees below him the houses. And his little heart leaps for joy and he's able to get down to the houses where he finds somebody who can get him help and eventually he's, he's rescued. All in all, he was lost for 18 hours. But he says the biggest moment of joy for him was when the sun rose and he could see where he was and he knew he wasn't going to be followed or tracked by any nasties in the night anymore. And this picture for me was a picture of us. It's simply this. That Jesus is the light by which we see all other things. Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, that you and I, as we were sat in pitch darkness, as we were being tracked by all kinds of things that aren't very nice, um, it was then that Jesus came for us. And it's by him that we see all other things. So why don't we just stand if we're able now and let, let's pray. I want to invite you, if, um, if you need prayer for anything specific, uh, if you would like to pray the prayer of salvation, if you'd like to invite Jesus into your life today and you haven't already, 
I'd be more than happy to pray for you um, after service. Or if there's anything else at all you would like to um, to pray for, myself and some other team would, would love to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that to us you are a light. And Lord, we thank you that just as that little boy lost out in the woods experienced such an explosion of joy and of hope when the sun rose. Lord, I pray today that we recognise and feel that same joy and that same hope at the knowledge that you have dawned in our lives. That you now have laid bare everything within us and you've seen the worst of me. You've seen the parts of me that are hidden in the darkness, in the furthest recesses of my heart. All the black thoughts, Lord God, that have plagued me and still you love me. Still you hold on to me. You will not let me go. Lord, I thank you that that's how strong your salvation is. And I want to pray for you today that you know that truth, that there is nothing strong enough to tear you from the Lord Jesus. There is no sin bad enough to put you outside of his salvation. He can save you to the uttermost today. So, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite Ray.